Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We've been working our way through the Christmas story this year chronologically, and we have seen the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew gives us at the beginning of the story. And we've talked about prophecies and preparation, the times where the angels came and made an announcement and the things that were leading up to the birth of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' birth itself with the events that surround it. And then as we continue on, we're going to see some of the things that happen following in the next week or two. One of the reasons that stories are such a good and helpful thing is that we identify with the characters in the stories. If you're reading a detective story like Sherlock Holmes or the Hardy Boys or something like that, you put yourself in the shoes of the detectives trying to solve the mystery. If you're reading a romance novel, maybe one of the greats like Pride and Prejudice, you put yourself in the shoes of the characters that are there and you think about the decisions that you might make or the things that you might have said or not said. If you're reading an adventure novel, maybe a G.A. Henty novel or something like that, you're putting yourself in the historical situation and thinking about the decisions that you would make if you were in the shoes of the main character. It's one of the reasons that Jesus told a lot of stories. It makes you think about how a character should have acted. It makes you think about your own choices. And the Bible is full of stories. That's what the majority of it is. True stories of things that really happened. And while the main point of those stories throughout the whole Bible is to lead us to Jesus, it's also true that it's good for us to learn from the responses of the people in the stories. And the Christmas story gives us lots of examples of that. Brief ones, but a variety of examples of how people responded to the events of Christmas. So this morning, as we continue reading through the Christmas story, read it with one ear open for what it tells us about Jesus, who he is and what he came to do, but also one ear open to hear what the responses are of the people, the people that are involved in those events, so that we can be thinking about our response to the message of Jesus. As we begin this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke 2, 1 through 38, but we're just going to kind of break it down section by section. The first section has to do with Joseph and Mary and their travel to Bethlehem. So this is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along as I read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Well, there's some details in those verses that are helpful for us to kind of take note of. It'll help us to understand why Luke is writing the story the way he does. First of all, who is Caesar Augustus? Where does he fit in the historical picture? Well, Caesar Augustus is also known as Octavian. So if you're reading you know, world history and you read about Octavian, that's who Caesar Augustus is. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So when Julius Caesar was assassinated, Octavian joined with Mark Antony and another guy kind of to form a, a three-way group of power to defeat the assassins who had 
uh, killed his father, his adopted father. And then once that was taken care of, then those guys eventually ended up kind of feuding among themselves and having wars. And so Octavian defeats Mark Antony. And by the time the dust settles, Octavian is himself sole emperor. And so Caesar Augustus is the first Roman emperor. He initiated the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. As you read the way that Luke tells the story here, he says that all the world should be registered. What does that mean, all the world? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there were people in Australia being registered, or in the Caribbean, or in the land where we live today. It was all the world according to how Rome viewed it, the Roman Empire. That's what all the world means. Caesar wasn't taxing people in lands that he had never been to yet. He's just taxing his empire, the lands that he has taken over. And that's a helpful thing for us to keep in mind when we're reading scripture. You always have to take the context into account. Sometimes it's all the world, literally the whole globe, that's in view. Like when it talks about how Jesus' kingdom will rule over the whole earth. That's what that's talking about. But a lot of times when it says all the earth, it might be just talking about the land of Israel or all the world here, it's just the Roman Empire. So read it in context. But the point of why Luke tells it the way he does, he starts off with Caesar and then Quirinius, who's under Caesar, and all the world being registered. He's, he's saying the arrival of Jesus is happening in the context of the Roman Empire. There's another ruler on the throne when Jesus arrives. And there's going to be conflict. The kingdom that Jesus is coming to bring is not just going to be welcomed by everyone on earth. Caesar is not going to just embrace Jesus and his kingdom with open arms. There's going to be conflict that comes. And so this sets us up for it. And then we have a bunch of place names. It says that Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So if you get a little map of the land of Israel and you want to know where this is, Nazareth is up here in the region of Galilee. And if you're looking at the map, you would be going, well, they're going down to Jerusalem. But the way that Luke writes it, he goes up to Jerusalem. Two things to keep in mind there. First of all, Hebrew maps are not north oriented with the north up. They're east oriented. So east is actually up. We'd have to turn the TV this way. But the reason Luke says you go up doesn't matter where you are in Israel. If you're going to the region of Jerusalem, you're going up because it's up at the top of the mountains. So you go up to Jerusalem even when you're heading south. But that gives you a little idea. The red is somebody's conjecture of the likely path that they would have taken, just knowing what the roads were in those days. We don't really know which path they took on their way there, but that's where they started and that's where they end up. It was Bethlehem. You can see Bethlehem is really close to Jerusalem. It's like five or six miles away. It's almost like a suburb of Jerusalem. It's it's distinct, but it's very close by to Jerusalem. So that's where they are headed. Now, why are they going? Well, they're going because everybody has to go to their ancestral hometown in order to register for this census. This is part of Caesar Augustus's plan for how he's going to fund the things that he wants to do in the empire. And so the taxes that are going to be levied are going to be levied kind of by province. And so they need everybody to come register in the place where their family is from, where their family lands are. 
Now, I don't know why Joseph is up in Nazareth other than I know there was a lot of building projects going on nearby up there. And Joseph is either a carpenter or a stonemason of some kind. And so maybe he's just up there for a few years for work. We don't really know. But the family lands are down in Bethlehem. And so that's why they have to go there. What's the importance of that journey? Why is Luke pointing this out to us? Well, first of all, it's to emphasize the fact that when Jesus arrives, he's arriving in the city of David, Bethlehem. This fulfills prophecy. It's because Jesus is descended from the royal line. He's descended from David. And the other thing I think that this points out to us, if we pause long enough to think about it, This really highlights for us the sovereignty and the providence of God in human affairs. Caesar Augustus was not sitting in Rome saying, you know, I was reading about this Hebrew prophecy about this Messiah, and I've heard about this girl who's pregnant, and it's supposed to be the Messiah, so I better do something to arrange that prophecy gets fulfilled and we get her to Bethlehem just in time to have the baby. He has no earthly idea that she exists or that Jesus is arriving or anything like that. So why does he choose this particular moment in time for this census? It's God's doing. He superintends providentially over all of the events of human history. What seemed like a big hardship. Think about it. If you're Joseph or if you're Mary, Do you really want to have to travel with Mary nine months pregnant across the land to get to Bethlehem? You don't want to do that, but you don't have a choice. You might be kind of complaining. God, why? Why now? Why are we doing this? But God has a reason for what he does. I think that's helpful for us to remember, especially as we look around at the world around us, And you see all the problems and you see all the difficulties and you say, God, why? Why are you doing this? Why is this thing happening now? Why? God is in control. He doesn't always explain to us what he's doing and why. Sometimes we get the explanation later. Sometimes we don't get it at all. But God is in control. And God arranges, he puts it in the heart of Caesar Augustus to have this census and to do it at the perfect time to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born there in fulfillment of prophecy according to his plan. As we go to the next set of verses, we look at verses 6 through 20, and I'm going to kind of break this down a little bit into some smaller groups here. So we have the actual story of Jesus' birth just in verses 6 and 7. So follow along as I read that. And while they were there in Bethlehem, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That phrase there has been kind of um, maybe misused and abused, no place for them in the inn. We have, you know, all kinds of manger scenes that have the innkeeper and all of that. I mean, I know our little nativity set growing up had an innkeeper. I can picture him with his green robe and his yellow lantern, you know, ready to open the door and all that. It's probably not the best translation. Um, the, the, the modern translations leave it this way, 
because the story is so familiar, you know, if you grew up with the King James Version, and um, it's just kind of, it rolls off your tongue if you're familiar with the Christmas story. It's not really probably an inn. The same word is translated two other times in the Gospels, and those are the only three times it appears. Mark chapter 14, this is at the Last Supper. It says that Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? It's a guest room in a house. Same thing uh, later in the book of Luke, Luke 22. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So the translators are translating the exact same word as guest room in those situations. They leave it as in, I think, just for traditional reasons in the Christmas story. But it's likely that this is talking about the guest room in one of Joseph's family members' house. Think about it. If you're Joseph... You're heading to Bethlehem, where are you going to go? You're going to go to your family's house, right? But so are all of the other family members who have scattered to other places too. So I think it's probably just that by the time Joseph and Mary get there, there's no more room in the family guest room. So they have to stay somewhere else. And they're going to stay in a stable, a manger. We don't know exactly. It's likely, now, if you go to Bethlehem, you see you know, the, the town is very hilly. So a lot of the homes are built kind of on the side of a hill. And so if you have the main level of the house, that lower part, you know, like today we might put a garage underneath the house there. That would often be where the animals were, kind of under the house, you know, a hollowed out area. That may be where they are. So actually in the same house, but just down where the animals are. It's also possible that they're outside the town in a place called Migdal Eder. It's the Tower of the Flock. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, it's a, a, a tower that the shepherds would use. In the base of it, there were several different stalls for animals, and they would use it a couple times a year when the sheep were giving birth, right? So when it's time for lambing, that's when that's occupied. So if, when they show up, if it's not the time of year for that, that might be a place where several people are going to stay because there's not room in the town itself. We don't really know, but it, the point of the story, the point of it is, as you think about the way that Jesus' arrival happens, it's not what you would expect, right? If you know the king is coming, you're expecting some kind of royal treatment. Well, that's not the kind of king that Jesus came to be. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He goes a few miles away to Bethlehem. He's not born in a palace. He's born where the animals are. He's not born with a whole bunch of royal attendants around. He's born with just Joseph and Mary. And then, eventually, the shepherds show up. So the point is just, it's emphasizing for us that the way that Jesus arrives is different than what anyone would have expected. It's humble. Jesus will be king, but not like people expected. And that whole kind of theme of misunderstanding why Jesus came and what he was there do continues through the gospel story and it's setting us up for it here as part of the Christmas story. The next little part um, in this section has to do with the angel's announcement and so this is verses 8 through 14. I'll read that for you. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So here we have the angels coming and making this announcement to the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord is all around them. This is some kind of brightness. I don't know the details of it. But they're filled with fear. And who wouldn't be, right? If you're out at night watching over the sheep, and all of a sudden you're surrounded by bright lights, by this glory, you would be afraid too. But the angel's message is, don't be afraid. And and that's really very common throughout scripture. When an angel appears, the natural response is to be afraid. And the angel often starts with, don't be afraid. And the reason is, he says, I've come with an announcement of good news. Good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. Well, good news is gospel. Angels here to announce the gospel. And it's going to be for all people. Now, what that means is, it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for one category of people. It's for everyone who responds. There's no boundaries or limits to what kind of people this message is for. It's good news of great joy for all the people. And the announcement is telling you that the Savior is born. What's a Savior? It's a deliverer. Well, what is this person going to deliver us from? We need delivered from the Romans. That's what the Messiah is going to come and do, right? Not this Messiah. Yes, he's going to set up an earthly kingdom that will one day rule over the whole world, but the immediate reason that he's come is to deliver his people from their sins, which is a much more difficult deliverance to accomplish. And it's in the city of David, in fulfillment of prophecy. And it's Christ the Lord. Christ is just another word for Messiah. So it's the Messiah, the anointed one who will be the Lord. He's the one we're telling you has been born in Bethlehem. And there will be a sign for the shepherds. This will verify the message. So here's the sign that you can look for so that you know I'm telling you the truth, the angel says. And the sign will be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Again, that points to this kind of unusual arrival for this particular king. And then... It says, a multitude of the heavenly host appear. That's designed to tell you that this is a really big number, and the word host is army. So the group that appears, I don't think we should necessarily picture the angelic choir kind of floating around above the the shepherds. I think more likely this is that as those shepherds look out around them on the hillsides, the Judean you know, hillside around them, they see that the entire hillside all around them is filled with an army, an army of angels. And if you read it that way, it calls to mind a story from the Old Testament, the story of Elisha. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha asks God to open the eyes of his servant so that his servant can see 
that they're not alone. They're being threatened, but Elisha says, look, there's no problem. And he asks God to open his servant's eyes. And when he does, he sees all the hillsides around are filled with horses and chariots of fire. In other words, the army of the Lord. I think that's what we should be picturing when we picture the shepherds being surrounded by this heavenly host. God's army is ever present even when we don't see it. Yes, even around us today. God's army is present. And it's a reminder here that what Jesus came to do is going to be opposed by the forces of evil. This is going to be a battle. And the heavenly army is here to fight, to accomplish what God has set out to do. And it's also a reminder that Jesus is not just a spiritual teacher, right? The the whole message that he comes to give is not some kind of floaty, live on a, you know, a new spiritual plane kind of message. It's a very, like, real life, he's here to be the king, and this is his army type message. That's why the army is there. They're celebrating the arrival of their leader. And the angels then have this announcement of praise. Glory to God in the highest. The highest glory goes to him for the birth of Jesus. And the result of what they are witnessing will be peace on earth with those with whom God is pleased. And that happens on an individual level, but it also happens on a worldwide level. So individually we find, how is it that we have peace with God? Paul says in Romans, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So when you trust this Savior, this Deliverer, this Messiah, to deal with your sins, then you are justified with God and you have peace with him. But it's also talking about a worldwide peace because he's here to bring the kingdom and he's ruling and reigning over his kingdom and he's putting all of his enemies under his feet until the day when he puts that final enemy under his feet, death, And he turns the kingdom over to the Father, and it will be a kingdom of peace. Isaiah describes it for us in the last, say, 10 or 11 chapters of that book. The last little section here has to do with the response of the shepherds. So look with me at verses 15 to 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So just briefly here, the shepherds respond in obedience and they go to Bethlehem to see what the angels were talking about. And they find things exactly as the angels had said. And they make it known. First of all, they tell the people there, hey, this is what the angels said to us. And we found it exactly the way that they described it. And so that kind of lends some credibility to the message. But then they continue on from there, telling people about it. They're evangelizing. They're spreading the good news, the gospel of the arrival of this king. And it also tells us that Mary treasured these things in her heart. Think about what Mary has been through. 
You go back nine or ten months, and you have the angel that shows up to her and announces what's about to happen. And then as she's pregnant, she's not yet married, and she's living in this small town, what's going to be happening to her? Lots of looks, stares, people whispering, people shunning her. And then she gets kind of an injection of like good news and encouragement when she goes to visit Elizabeth. And she gets that reminder that, okay, this is not, I'm not crazy. This is, there's something supernatural happening because that message comes through Elizabeth, you know, and, and so there's that encouragement, but then there's three more months after that, right? There's, there's more time that goes on. And then there's the whole journey to Bethlehem and it's just her and Joseph. And you know, those of you that have had kids, what a joyful time it is. And you want family to be able to celebrate that with you. And I don't know what their family thought. What did Joseph's family, who's right there in Bethlehem, think? What did Mary's family think? Or are they just kind of on their own here? So when the shepherds show up and they say, Listen to what the angels told us. I'm thinking that beyond just the joy and excitement of having this new baby, I'm thinking this, this was a very encouraging moment for Mary. And so she treasures these things. She ponders them in her heart. And the shepherds continue to praise God. Well, the last part of the story here in Luke 2 this morning is verses 21 to 38. And I'm going to break this section up a little bit as well. This, this has to do with Jesus being presented at the temple in the days following his birth. First of all, we have Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus to the temple. Let me just start in at verse 21 and read down to verse 24. It says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple. He's circumcised on the eighth day and then he's named Jesus. And the point here is they are being obedient to what they've been told, what they've been told in the law and what they've been told by the angel. So they do what they're supposed to do, having Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. They do what the angel told them by naming him Jesus. Then they continue to do this when the time is up for purification. So this is uh, several weeks later, Mary and Jesus are brought to the temple for purification. And Luke emphasizes that they're doing everything according to the law of the Lord. And so they offer sacrifices according to the law. Now, it's not the standard sacrifice. It's the poor person's version. So that tells you something about their social status, their financial situation. They are not well off. They qualify to give kind of the lower level offering that a poor person would give. But they're doing everything in perfect obedience to the law. And then we have in verses 25 to 35, an encounter with a man named Simeon. 
Here's what this says. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Who is Simeon? We don't know a lot about him other than it says he's righteous and devout. So he knows his Bible and he believes it. That's what we understand. He believes it and he obeys. And he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he has studied the scriptures and he knows what is supposed to happen someday. He's eagerly awaiting it. And he has a promise from God that he himself will not die until he has seen the Messiah. So imagine that. If you're Simeon, and day after day you're there in the temple and time's going on and you're getting older and you have this promise that God has given to you that someday you are going to see the Messiah. He's going to be there before you die. And then the day finally comes. I don't know what it was. You know, obviously the Holy Spirit somehow indicates to him that Jesus is the one. And so the day arrives and he comes over and he takes Jesus in his arms and says the things that he says. And Simeon blesses God. He sees the birth of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. And it's a salvation that won't just be for Israel, but will also be for the Gentiles. And Simeon says, I can now depart in peace because God has kept his promise and he has brought the Messiah. And so Joseph and Mary both, we are told, marvel at what Simeon says. Again, it's this kind of confirmation of what they have been told about Jesus. They're getting confirmation from lots of different places, lots of different people. Everywhere they turn, God is sending someone to them with this message that Jesus is who the angel had told them. It's it's like their faith is being bolstered by these encouraging messages that they get. But at the same time, there's something kind of heartbreaking in it because Simeon blesses Joseph and Mary, but he says to Mary that there's going to be heartbreak with this too. This child will be for the rise and fall of many in Israel. So he's going to lift up people who had been trodden down and he's going to bring down people who had seemed like they were on top. That's going to happen in Jesus' ministry. He's going to be an unexpected kind of king and there's going to be judgment against the religious rulers. He'll be a sign that is opposed. In other words, as he carries out his ministry, there's going to be a lot of opposition. There's going to be a lot of conflict and Mary's going to witness it. Not only is Mary going to witness it, 
in her worst moments, she's going to participate in it. Because there's going to be a point in time where Jesus begins his ministry, and as he's doing things, it says that his family, his mother and his siblings, thought he was crazy. But whatever it is that leads to that moment of weakness, in time that turns around because she's a faithful follower by the end and she's there at the crucifixion when Jesus dies. And Simeon says, a sword will pierce your soul. In other words, she's going to see the opposition to Jesus through his ministry and she's going to see how it ends. Imagine as a mother watching the things that are happening to Jesus, happening to your son. And you can understand what Simeon means here, that a sword is going to pierce her soul. And then the very end of the passage that we're looking at this morning is one more encounter. They encounter Anna in verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So who is Anna? Again, we don't have a lot of details. She's a prophetess. She's an older widow, she's 84, and she stays at the temple all day, every day, worshiping and fasting and praying. And Anna's response when Jesus shows up is to give thanks to God and to proclaim the good news to those who have been waiting for the redemption of Israel. Many years ago, Israel had been redeemed out of Egypt, and now their redemption has come again. And that's what Anna is celebrating. So what does this story, the part that we've read this morning, tell us about Jesus? Well, when Luke tells us that this is happening in the days of Caesar Augustus and that Jesus is born in the city of David, our minds are drawn to the idea that Jesus is going to be a king, that there's going to be a conflict with the empires of this world because Jesus' kingdom is not just a a floaty in your heart, in, you know, in your head kind of thing. It has real world implications. In the message that the angels give to the shepherds, we see that he's going to be the savior, the Messiah. He's the one who's going to save his people from their sins. It's going to be bringing great joy, this message, and it's for all peoples, and it's going to bring peace for those with whom God is pleased. When we see Simeon, we find out that Jesus is the consolation of Israel. He's, he's the one that all of the hopes of Israel were resting on. He is that Messiah. He's bringing salvation. He'll be a, right, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. Gentiles and Jews. For everyone. That's who this Messiah is coming for. But at the same time, he will be one who suffers. Because the sword will pierce Mary's soul as she sees the suffering of this Messiah. And Anna reminds us that through Jesus, God is accomplishing redemption for his people once again. They will be freed, this time not from slavery in Egypt, but from the slavery of sin. That's the 
the, the main point of this story is who Jesus is. At the same time this morning, I asked you to listen with one ear open for the responses of the people in the story. So how did the people in this story respond? Well, the shepherds, initially, they're filled with fear. But then after they listen to the word, they respond to the word in faith and obedience. And then beyond that, in praise and evangelism. That's a great model for us. To not fear, but to listen to the words that God says, to believe them, to obey them, then to tell people about it and to praise him. That's a great model for us. How about the angelic host? Well, they show up praising God, giving him glory, celebrating the peace that Christ would bring to men. All of those are things that we should join with them in doing ourselves. How about Mary? She treasured these things in her heart. She pondered these things. That one's maybe a little more difficult for us at times to stop and take time to think and consider what it is that God is doing and what it is that he has said. Joseph. Well, Joseph is a model of obedience. He took Jesus to the temple. He obeyed the law. He marveled at Simeon's words. Joseph is just at each point in the story where he shows up, it's faith and obedience. He does what he's asked to do. We just, we don't have a lot of content from him, but he takes care of Mary and Jesus and he obeys the word of the Lord. Simeon blesses God. He sees what God is doing. He believes God's word and he blesses God for what God is doing in the world. And he speaks God's truth, even the hard parts. Talks about the fulfillment of prophecy. I bet he didn't want to say to Mary what he did. I bet he didn't want to put a little bit of a damper on that moment. But he does because it's the hard words that he's called to speak. He speaks truth no matter what. And Anna gives thanks to God. She's telling people about God's redemption, God's salvation. So if we think of those responses to the Christmas story, I think those in many ways give us a good model of how we should be responding. Listen and believe the word like the shepherds. Praise and glorify God like everybody in the story. And evangelism, spreading the word about Jesus. It's good news of great joy for all peoples. And so we play a part in that story in doing what the angels did and what the shepherds did and spreading the word. Let's take a few moments before we sing in response just to pray and to ask God that our response would be uh, in line with what we've seen this morning from his word. Lord, we thank you for the Christmas story, the story of the birth of Jesus, and we thank you for what this account tells us of who Jesus is and what he came to do, the, 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 the great accomplishment of salvation and redemption, the, the fulfillment of prophecy as the consolation of Israel, the one who would bring peace with God, the one who would bring great joy. I pray that we would be brought to worship you for that this morning. And I pray that our response would be in line with what we've seen from the, the people who are in this story, that we would be those who take in the word and believe it and then respond in faith and obedience, that we would open our mouths in praise and glorifying you. 
It seems to be just kind of the natural response that everyone has when you work throughout Scripture, and I pray that we would join in that in a heartfelt and sincere way. And then we see that the, the news is spread. The shepherds and the angels are telling the good news, and we want to do that too. We have a role to play in the spreading of your kingdom, and it begins with spreading the good news of what you have done. Teach us to be people who respond in the ways that we've seen this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.